Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. We use the words psychopath and sociopath a lot. Sometimes we use them in a kind of clinical way. Sometimes we use them just as substitutes really for jerk or liar. You might have heard the words come up in connection recently in the news about Omarosa, right? She seems able to adapt her own values or sacrifice her own values to fit into almost any kind of ethical situation and then reverse herself instantly, adopting a whole new value set. So does that make her a psychopath or a sociopath? I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but we did do this show to try to pin down those kinds of questions. And our interviews include an actual diagnosed and self-professed sociopath. Of course, can you believe what a sociopath tells you, even about sociopathy? Well, you'll find out after this news. Honey, I'm home. I'm in here. I am famished the whole way home. I was thinking about the leftover chili I put aside last night. I ate that. Didn't you remember that I said I wanted to have it after work? Were you worried that I would be disappointed? Yes, and no. What's going on? You seem kind of weird today. I want to break up. Why? I married someone else in Florida last week. You what? I hate you right now. Oh, before I forget, you were going to introduce me to your brother, the one who was on Mad Men. I really need to get that guy in my network. Greg, were you just using me to get to my brother? See, now you're getting hung up on the idea of being used. It's good to be used. It means you're useful. You want to go get lobster rolls? You just dumped me, all right? That was so long ago. <laughs> Do yourself a favor. Don't turn into one of those people who dwells in the past. You are a sociopath. You say that like it's a bad thing. It's just that I'm so upset. I trusted you. You seemed so charming, and I really let down some of my defenses that I... <laughs> What did you do? What is this? When your voice gets like that, it really bothers my ears. Also, I just bought this pepper spray, and I really want to use it. What am I supposed to do? Wait ten years to be attacked? Just get out! I never want to see you again! I gotta do something to cheer myself up. Actually, a lobster roll does sound pretty good. Let me just wash my eyes out and drive over to the crab shack and... Where are my car keys? Greg! I'm just borrowing it. Today on the show, sociopaths. Love them, hate them, they're here either way. And now he's so vain he probably thinks the show is about him. Colin McEnroe. It's unusually good acting in that intro. Uh, I I wish there were sort of Oscars for that kind of thing. They were both wonderful. All right, so we are talking about sociopaths today. Um, In just a second, you're going to meet M. E. Thomas. Uh, She is, in fact, a self-describing sociopath, a diagnosed sociopath uh, or psychopath. We'll talk a little bit, too, about the interchangeability or lack thereof of those terms. She's living a nonviolent professional life. She writes under a pseudonym. She could be dealing with you in some other capacity, and you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't know she was M.E. Thomas anyway. Anyway, you're going to meet her in just a second. 
Uh, here in the studio with me is Ariel Baskin-Somers. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Yale. Um, she's interested in the ways in which psych- psychopaths can be trained to process emotion better. Uh, do they always? Do they have to be psychopaths or sociopaths forever? Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about a lot of things today about this term too. That it really does get slung around, right? You just you use it. You apply it to anybody that you're basically mad at, anybody who strikes you as having been a jerk, uh, if they cut you off in traffic, if they're your ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-spouse. Ah, yeah, she's a sociopath. But, I mean, the word has to mean something more than that. It's got to be, in order to be a useful word, it's got to actually uh, have some meaning. So let's talk about that. If you have questions, uh, if you have agonizing experiences that you would like to share with us, if you uh, are a sociopath, tweet us at WNPR Colin, uh, where uh, the sociopath that you heard in the intro will perhaps tweet back at you, WNPR Colin. So, uh, Ariel Baskin-Somers, I'm going to start with you. Um, well, first of all, we do kind of use the terms sociopath and psychopath interchangeably, at least in common speech. Clinically, do those words have distinct meanings? They actually do, and thank you so much for having me. Usually the word sociopath and psychopath is distinguished in terms of the root cause or etiology. So psychopathy tends to be more associated with a innate or almost born with brain mechanism or deficit, whereas a sociopath is more um, developed through the environment and most importantly through poor or um, harsh parenting style. So David Licken early in the 50s really laid out how these two pathways towards disinhibition, criminal behavior can develop, but they are quite distinct and, and tend to have differences in terms of behavior and cause. Do they have uh, commonalities as well? Absolutely. So both can seem quite charming, both can seem manipulative, both engage in impulsive and chronic antisocial behavior, but why they do tends to be very different. Um, and and uh, at least with psychopaths, I get the feeling just even looking at the, the names of the studies that you've done and the work that you've done, there's some effort anyway to, to maybe even sort of locate this somewhere in physiology, right, to figure out whether the amygdala or some other part of the brain is involved in, in, in the, what, what a psychopath ultimately does and becomes. Absolutely. So if we believe that part of the reason why psychopaths engage in this chronic antisocial behavior, lying and manipulativeness or glibness, we might be able to identify specific neural pathways that mediate that behavior and contribute to their essential skill deficit in terms of being able to engage in adaptive behavior. That's really important because if we're able to identify pathways in uh, psychopathy that contribute to their behavior, then we're also able to hopefully train or treat those pathways through different types of remediation programs. Um, This is um, obviously interesting just at a sheer clinical level, but it has all kinds of ramifications that spread out through society. This is a term, particularly psychopath, is a term that's taken pretty seriously by the criminal justice system. There are people who wind up staying in prison longer because they score higher on this now pretty standardized scale for psychopathy, right? Correct. So often uh, the psychopathy checklist revised or PCLR developed by Robert Hare is used to assess psychopathy. Now, this involves doing a life history interview, collecting collateral information and rating an individual on a a 20 question scale. And someone can uh, earn up to 40 points on the PCLR if someone is 30 or above. They're typically described as psychopath. 
So, uh, and, and once again, this isn't—it's a conversation you can, you and I can have at a clinical or scholarly level. But this, it really, there are criminal justice systems that will direct outcomes uh, for somebody based on where they score. Correct. Uh, often, higher scores in psychopathy are associated with more versatility of crime, more violence, and higher rates of recidivism. And so, based on those statistics, often criminal justice systems do use that as a risk predictor or risk factor. For better or worse, there are there is some research to suggest that that is not the only or most predictive risk factor for recidivism, but it's one of the better ones that we have now. All right, let's uh, add to the conversation. Uh, Emmy Thomas, that is a pseudonym for the author of Confessions of a Sociopath: uh, A Life Spent Hiding in Plain Sight. Um, and uh, we should also mention that she is the creator and host of a popular blog called SociopathWorld.com. I think it's been around for about two thousand since about two thousand and eight, uh, and has uh, many, many, many thousands of visitors. So some of them actual sociopaths and other people who uh, are commenting on sociopaths that they've known and uh, lots of other people with other reasons for visiting. But Emmy Thomas, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. And and just maybe for starters, tell us your story as you know it. You self-identify as a sociopath. You're listening to Ariel Baskin-Somers talk about all that in, in pretty hard-edged clinical terms. Um, uh, translate that into the, the, the way that you understand your own life and your own character. Yeah, well, I have been diagnosed as a sociopath. I, I always knew that I was different growing up. Uh, sometimes I attribute it to maybe I was just smarter, maybe I was a little bit more clever than my my childhood friends. Maybe they weren't seeing the opportunities for exploitation because of that, for instance. And I, I didn't really uh, come to grips with how different uh, I was until in college when I had, uh, you know, several kind of relationships fail and I ended up getting blacklisted from the program that I was in because I stole a friend's personal journal on you know the school trip and there was a lot of drama and I sort of realized that I do this all the time you know so I started doing a little bit of introspection about myself and I realized I'm manipulative I'm cold-hearted I'm you know everything every person seems kind of like an instrumental object for me to control like a chess piece kind of naturally I don't feel empathy really you know ever since I was little uh, I remember one time watching TV and there's this little boy crying on the TV and I made fun of him and my dad was like, have you no empathy? You know, and I, I really didn't. I didn't then. And then I still struggle with it now. And I was speaking to one of uh, a classmate of mine, someone who was in the same program, and I described to them the characteristics that I had sort of learned to identify with myself. And she said, you might want to consider the possibility you're a sociopath. And I read the characteristics online, and I thought, yeah, this actually really does fit. This explains a lot. But, you know, I was doing pretty well again by that point, and so I continued on just doing what I was doing until my life failed again. You know, every three years or so, relationships fail, losing a very prestigious job. And then I thought, you know, this can't keep happening every three years. Uh, this is when I was in my 20s. If this keeps happening, you know, it's going to happen like, you know, 20 more times in my lifetime. Am I going to be able to survive every time and move on to some other place where people don't know my name or change career paths or whatever else I had been doing in order to get past it then? So I decided I need to look more into this and try to figure out if I really am a sociopath, and if so, how to deal with it. 
how and, to make it work for me in my life. And we should say that you did take the exact test that um, uh, that Ariel was talking about before, uh, and that you you did score in the the psychopath range uh, of that particular test. Although I just I wanted to ask you something about that. When you took that test, I read the part of the section of your book uh, about when you took that test. You had already kind of self identified as a sociopath, and you'd really begun to kind of add that notion to your identity, and and maybe even begin thinking about being you know, kind of a high-profile sociopath as opposed to a completely secretive one. So did you have any incentive maybe to skew your answers a little bit so that uh, so that you'd get a 19 or a 20 out of 24 instead of a, a 15? I don't think that you could say that it was unbiased. You know, I knew too much about it. I took the screening version. I didn't take the full version that they give, for instance, prisoners when they have, you know, a full criminal record. Maybe I had an incentive. I don't know really how you would say that I have an incentive to do it, though. It's... Uh, identifying this way has, has sort of ruined my life, you know, in some ways. You know, once once people find out that I'm a sociopath, then it's like, you know, suddenly I'm inhuman and I can be treated however they want. And, that, you know, there are no sort of repercussions or they, they don't empathize with me anymore. You know, they, they just uh, do whatever they think they need to to protect themselves, uh, which is often very negatively uh, directed towards me. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I've got some questions back to Ariel. But um, based on uh, what she said at the beginning of the show and then based on my reading of your book, uh, uh, if we're going to concede that dichotomy between sociopath and psychopath, I really would call you a sociopath just because reading your book, it seems to me, you know, you really did have kind of a rough upbringing in some ways. Uh, your uh, father beat you, right? I mean, he hit you. Um, you tell a very disturbing story about your parents leaving you and your brother in your park and just driving away even as the two of you ran after the car and screamed. You were, I think, 10 and 11. I mean, I, I feel like I'm reading the story of somebody whose environment shaped them into a sociopath as opposed to somebody who was born with the wiring, the neural wiring, to be a psychopath. Uh, how do you react to that statement? Um, you know, I guess I, I can only kind of say my own experience. I'm obviously not an expert and you know, although I'm aware of the distinctions that some people make about the terms sociopath and psychopath, I'm not sure that they comport entirely with my own experience. I sort of feel like, you know, maybe my upbringing triggered something, but, you know, I provide the example of my brother who is, you know, an extreme empath, and he's only a year and a half older than me. And he he had the exact same upbringing, basically. You know, we basically were together all the time growing up. And so what what about that didn't get triggered in him? So to say that, you know, that it's primary, primarily genetic in a psychopath, okay, but th- there has to be something, too, to be triggered there. You know, there has to be in a sociopath as well. So I, I guess I kind of think in general more like you have to have the genetic predisposition no matter what. And then you also have to have an environmental trigger, kind of no matter how you make the distinctions between sociopath and psychopath. Um, I, I'm going to switch back to Ariel Baskin Somers for a second, um, and, and just I want to talk a little bit about more about that physiology. Okay, so um, let's park for a moment the question of whether Emmy Thomas is a sociopath or a psychopath. Let's talk about people who track pretty well on, on or, pro, or poorly, depending on how you think about it, on this scale of, of psychopathy. So you're scoring very high on that test. Maybe you're already in prison. That's how you got to be uh, a subject in, in, in one of these studies. Uh, they do a crani- cranial MRI or something uh, on you to be able to look at your brain. Uh, what kinds of patterns are you likely to see with 20 of those people? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
For a long time, the belief was, particularly neurally, that psychopathic individuals had a deficit in processing fear. So that was referred to as a low fear hypothesis. And in the brain, that's often associated with reductions in amygdala activation, which is a very important part of our brain for processing emotions and salient pieces of information. Um, however, recent research that um, I've completed as well as others at the University of Wisconsin-Madison suggests that it's not a fundamental or pan-situational deficit in emotions that psychopathic individuals have, but rather they tend to have a problem attending to contextual cues. And so what I mean by that is they're basically the worst multitaskers in the world. Once they get focused on their particular goal or focused on a particular feature of information, they're unable to switch their attention to different, uh, to different aspects of their goal. So, for example, if a psychopathic individual walks into a bank to try and steal money, they're going to be so focused on their goal of getting the money and not be able to attend to the little girl crying in the corner or the woman screaming behind the counter. And that tends to be inhibitory or disrupt behavior for most other people, but not the psychopath. And that's why they seem sort of cool, calm, and collected. In terms of the brain, what we tend to see then is that it's really an interaction between that amygdala, that part of your brain that's important for emotions, and also the prefrontal cortex, a part of the brain that is important for inhibiting uh, behavior. We tend to see that the prefrontal cortex actually dampens the amygdala response. So again, it's more of an attentional to context problem that is then inhibiting the emotion component. And we see this through a variety of measures, whether it's through brain imaging, through a psychophysiology such as startle response um, and event-related potentials. All right, so let's uh, try to take that and just for a moment translate it into uh, the language of behavior and, and moral action and stuff like that. So there's a couple reasons why I should actually pick up a pick a better uh, example than this. But uh, okay, so there's a couple of reasons why I don't park in a handicapped spot. Besides the fact I'm not handicapped, obviously. Uh, now, one of them would be I would really feel bad, right? If somebody came in a wheelchair um, and they needed that spot, and I was taking it, and you know, I would feel bad that I deprived them of that. And then the other reason is. I could encounter a lot of negative consequences, ranging from simply the obvious disapproval of people yelling at me, whatever, or to somebody giving me a really bad ticket or something like that. It sounds like in terms of what you just described about the amygdala and the physiology uh, of the psychopath, I'm hearing more of the latter, right, that I am – I can just shut out those kinds of questions. I'm not I'm, – I'm I'm disinhibited and I'm not fearful because I just don't process that kind of stuff. Somebody's going to yell at me. Somebody's going to give me a ticket. Is, is that the mechanism that you're describing? And does it also include that moral part? Like I would just personally feel bad too. Absolutely. I think it's a combination of, of both things that you're describing. Again, if we think about goal-directed behavior, why would you be parking in the handicapped spot? It's usually to get somewhere quickly. Mm -hmm. And so a psychopath might focus on that particular aspect of the goal. And over time through socialization, most of us consider that moral aspect. But if you have these attentional or emotional deficits that is common in psychopathy, you don't tend to build that elaborative network where you're incorporating the social um, moral component as well as the emotional consideration of others. Um, you know, Amy Thomas, switching back to you for a second, you're listening to this conversation. All right, well, let's pick the handicap spot. You're in a real hurry. Uh, you pull into a big Y uh, parking lot or whatever they call it, supermarkets, wherever it is that you're calling from. Uh, you're in a big hurry. The, you don't see too many closed spaces. There's a handicap spot. Would you, would you pull in there? You know, it's funny. I 
I don't think I've ever parked in a handicapped spot. And I think it's because, exactly as you say, the advantage of parking in the handicapped spot is, you know, maybe like 30 seconds walk. Maybe if there was no other parking place and I was like, you know, as Ariel says, very goal-driven in that moment to do a particular thing. Of course, I wouldn't let something like that stand in my way, but I don't think most people do either. Uh, you know, for me, I think that uh, I'm constantly weighing the costs and benefits of my decisions. It's true that I am not an emotional decision-maker and I'm not a moral decision-maker, but it's not as if, you know, I'm constantly driven by every kind of impulse or whim or in this moment I want to do this. There are, of course, moments when I feel that way, when I feel very much focused and in the moment. And uh, it is true. I do I do feel like Ariel described what I experienced, that I, uh, I'm so focused on this particular thing that any other cues, you know, somebody's very upset with you or somebody's crying, you know, they don't register. I just keep, I keep going on and doing what I want until maybe I snap out of it. You know, most of the time I, I eventually will snap out of it, uh, especially recently. I've kind of learned to try to be a little bit more aware even in those moments. All right, let's, let's pick a story from your book. This is a really simple story. It doesn't involve uh, any uh, huge damage to, to anybody else. Um, maybe we can uh, think of one of those stories a little bit later. But let's take a really easy one, all right? So you want to go to the beach. you got a friend with you. You need a, an extra bike. You're in your apartment building where you live. Uh, there's a bike there. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your neighbor, and, but you want to use it. The neighbor's not there to ask. You just decide you're going to take it. Now, what I notice you do in the book is uh, what you describe is, in fact, building a narrative in your head for why this is okay. And now rather than just sort of like, screw it, I'm just taking the bike, I'll think about it later, that's not quite what you describe in your book. You describe thinking, well, you know, in some ways it'd actually be good for the bike uh, if I took it. Uh, It's got dust all over it. Uh, I'll put a little air on the tires. It needs some air on the tires. It's good for the chain to move around, helps lubricate the chain a little bit. Uh, I'm actually doing this person a favor by taking this bike that I haven't asked if I can take. Uh, uh, Postscript, it didn't work out that well at all. The neighbor found out what happened and didn't see it that way. So uh, to me, that sounds, uh, once again, a little bit different from what uh, Ariel Baskin-Somers is talking about, that you you figured out a way to make this okay to do. Yeah, you know, and that is because uh, the bike story was after I sort of adopted this, uh, I call it a prosthetic moral compass of cost-benefit analysis, like I'm an economist, because most of the time, something that is the benefit exceeds the cost, we consider that a, like a moral action. You know, you help a lady across the street, you get the accolades, you know, you help the lady across the street. You kill somebody, that's terrible because you've deprived them of the life, you know, and for what purpose? That, you know, the, the harm greatly exceeds the benefits. So most morality does track that, I think. And uh, that's kind of what I learned to do starting in my early 20s. And so I wasn't necessarily kind of justifying my actions so much as saying, which is, what is the cost-benefit answer in the bike story and because of all the things you mentioned the bike chain you know gets moved and the air gets in the tires and whatever else the the world would have benefited from me taking the bike and so i said okay well then according to this standard this prosthetic moral compass or code that i've adopted that's the right answer Ariel uh, Baskin-Somers, a lot of the people that you deal with, uh, that you're studying, they're hardcore psychopaths. And, I mean, it's not at a purely theoretical level. I sense a lot of them are in prison, right, or have been in prison. And all of them are in prison. So they've done pretty horrible things. They're armed robbers. They're uh, Maybe it's Bernie Madoff. I I don't know. You're talking to somebody anyway. Will they be constructing the kinds of narratives that you're hearing Emmy Thomas, or are, are they just not really capable of that? 
I think one one aspect that's really important to distinguish is typically for individuals who score high on the PCL or the psychopathy checklist, there's an automaticity to their behavior. And so it's driven often by these kind of neural processes we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And that automatic process tends to inform almost everything they do and contribute to the chronicity of their antisocial behavior, of their impulsive behavior, of their glibness and manipulativeness. And so it's not necessarily something they do and stop and reflect on. It's just something that has been built up for how they process. It's essentially a different pathway than the rest of us. That's not to say it's not possible to teach them eventually to stop and reflect or to rebuild the neural pathways, but that's not how it initially starts. It initially starts almost like learning to run and and keeping pace. And at some point, your body just knows how to keep pace over time without having to train yourself. It's like So you're saying like, like muscle memory, essentially. Exactly. I mean, Michael Jordan doesn't have to think about how to do a layup every time he does a layup. I'm going to bounce the ball once, move it to my right hand. I mean, he just does it. Uh, and you're saying oh, by the time this person that you're studying is 25, 26 years old, uh, this person has done all kinds of um, antisocial things or exploitive things or, or flat-out illegal things and sometimes violent things in a way that doesn't really require a lot of pre-forethought pre, well, and, and, and planning and justification. Correct. Typically, the, the neural processes that we're seeing happen very early on and, and often can happen at a pre-conscious or even before-conscious awareness uh, level. Um, we're going to take a break here. I want to do a special shout-out to Allison Ehrenreich. She's one of our interns here. She conceived this show uh, very early in her internship, and she has nursed it uh, to, uh, to fruition here today. So we're talking about sociopaths and psychopaths. We'll be right back after this. My baby is a sociopath. Oh, she's so cold and she's so crass. My baby is a sociopath. We're talking about psychopaths. We're talking about sociopaths. Ariel Baskin-Somers is with us, an assistant professor of psychology at Yale. Later in the show, we'll also talk about some of her research about ways in which psychopaths can or can't be trained uh, to do things a little bit better, to, in fact, uh, process their emotions in a way maybe similar to the way the rest of us do. Also with us, Emmy Thomas. She wrote the book Confessions of a Sociopath, a life hiding in plain sight, and runs the popular blog Sociopath World. She is a self-professed, diagnosed uh, sociopath or psychopath living in a nonviolent professional life. She writes under a pseudonym. All right. So, um, Amy Thomas, I'm coming back to you right now. And um, I want to talk a little bit about this blog, sociopathworld.com. So you've got a lot of people visiting there, people leaving stories, people writing letters, people asking questions, people making comments. Um, is there? Do you notice certain trends among? among the, I mean, the blog may have had sort of a purpose in your mind when you started it, but are people using the blog, visiting the blog for purposes that seem consistent? Uh, trends that surprise you? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I did have a kind of a, something in mind when I started the blog. I thought I'm going on this journey, and I, for whatever reason, have always been a journaler you know, have always written kind of an account of, you know, and when when I was little, it was like all megalomaniacal fantasies, you know, about how smart I was or whatever. But uh, I think the journaling has helped me to become more self-aware. And so that's why I wanted the blog to be kind of leaving breadcrumbs for people that would follow me. You know, I started it in 2008. And at that point, I was very aware that everything that was put on the internet would last for forever. So I thought, you know, this is a, a great way to kind of put stuff out there. 
and kind of just track my journey as I come to understand what this disorder is and, you know, hopefully grow to accommodate it better in my life. And uh, some people come on for that. I, I mean, that's kind of been the, the mission is let's not glorify it or talk about ways to manipulate. But I do talk about ways to manipulate uh because I want people to be aware of what sociopaths do, too. There's uh, probably an audience, half and half of the people are just uh, looky-loos, maybe, and then the other quarter are people who have been seriously harmed by a sociopath, and the other quarter are people who identify as a sociopath or are at least exploring that term as possibly being an identifying term for them. And sometimes, you know, the sociopaths and the victims of the sociopaths they get in these huge fights and arguments and people try to ruin each other on the blog so i mean that's the sort of stuff that happens in real life too it's actually something that happens on all blogs not just yours i mean yeah in the um, comment section right of any of anything it's uh everybody's an inner sociopath comes out there Uh, i have so many questions about that i just do want to emphasize the fact that the term looky lose is not recognized by the dsm-5 but um some people would say you know what i don't think you're a sociopath me thomas because sociopaths don't want people to know that they're sociopaths i mean obviously you're using a pseudonym but sociopaths don't want to self-identify that way usually if you're dealing with a sociopath you find out in a fairly unpleasant way somewhere down the line that many things you've been told were not true and stuff that you used to have is missing and we can we can make the standard list but we don't typically find out because because the person says, hi, I'm a sociopath. So, I mean, would you at least concede that you're a little unusual that way? Uh, yeah, I think that I am unusual, although it's interesting you say, you know, I've kind of followed the comment sections, and recently there have been a couple sociopaths who are tr- kind of trying the experiment of coming out. You know, what would it be like if at least my close friends and family members knew that I s- self-identify this way, or at least that I have these particular characteristics, even if the diagnosis doesn't apply 100% to me? And it's interesting reading their experiences. You know, a lot of people will sort of take that information and kind of like shuffle it away. You know, it reminds me, I was reading an article yesterday about this same-sex couple in a small town in turn of the last century, America, and about how people had a similar, uh, you know, their townsfolk, their other neighbors had a similar uh, way to treat them. You know, like, okay, we're aware that you're a couple and you consider yourself a couple and we realize that you provide good things to the town, and we like you as people, and so we're just kind of kind of ignore the inconvenient truth that you are uh, living in sin, you know, something that we would find reprehensible. So I think that's how a lot of people, you know, in my life kind of treat it. It's this inconvenient truth that, for the most part, they don't think about. Um, I've sw- again, so many questions. I'm going to ask one, you one more question before we go back to Ariel, see, see if I can set this up. So you may have noticed, uh, Emmy Thomas, in, in, Thomas, in the intro that we did, there was actually a little quote from you. I think it's not from your book, but not, but in your blog, where at one point the, our putative sociopath in the intro says something like, well, now you're getting all hung up about the idea of being used. You know, it, uh, it's, it, that, it's not a terrible thing to be used. It means that you're useful. Um, I, th- I think you wrote something like that on your blog. Now, Here's an area where I think most people's, most people's values and understanding of that linguistic expression would diverge in the woods from you. Uh, most people think it's bad to be used. Most people think want to be treated as a means rather than – I mean as an end rather than a means. I should get that right. Uh, and um, – you know, m- most people think, oh, no, that means you're not treating me as a real person. You're treating me uh, as a stepping stone to something else that you want. My actual humanity, individuality are incidental to you. So 
would you concede in any way that most people would be troubled by that statement? It's not so bad to be used. Don't get hung up about it. I I think that most people would believe, you know, would have a, a problem with it. It's not so bad to be used. But I think, you know, there there is that counter argument. You know, what is your value to the world or to anything if if you're not useful at all? You know, I guess it kind of gets to this fundamental question of what makes humanity valuable? Why should we treat anybody as, you know, a person? And I'm curious for the answer, too, because, you know, having come out as a sociopath, a lot of people no longer think that I am valuable according to their criterion. So it can't just be that other people don't have criterions, and I do, you know, but that they have different ones that I do. And I generally think if somebody's useful, then I don't care if they're, you know, a criminal, or I don't care if they're, you know, if we take it back to the turn of the last century, gay, or they're living in sin, or they're Catholic, or they're Jewish, or there are any number of these different characteristics of people that we've come to sort of vilify over the years. I don't care about that sort of stuff. I just think they're useful to me. And so the good thing about seeing life that way is, yeah, you don't live in this uh, xenophobic world of prejudice in which you will not allow somebody a chance because they don't fit the... uh, kind of mold of what you expect useful, valuable humanity to be. You know, we had tried to book Immanuel Kant for this show, but it turns out he's dead and in Switzerland. So we just, I mean, he'd be the perfect person to jump in here. But uh, since he's not here, I'm going to go back uh, over to Ariel Baskin-Somers for a second, um, not for a Kantian explanation of means versus ends. But for when, when you're interviewing and working with these people who are prisoners, who are high-scoring psychopaths, I mean, I feel like in the conversation I just had with Emmy Thomas, there really was a pretty substantial divergence, uh, not just in our value systems, but even on kind of how we process the language that we used. I mean, I feel as though uh, uh, the statement, you used me, is inevitably a negative reflection on whoever I'm talking to. She clearly doesn't. Is this, do you, is this a, a, a process or a pattern that you notice when you're talking to these people, that they often really will process a statement in a very radically different way from the way, say, you would? Yes, we see that all the time, and that's actually part of what we consider when we rate the PCLR. So we often use the words and the terms and stories that individuals who are incarcerated are telling us to rate items such as glibness, thinking that they're better than other people, these kind of um, charming stories where they tend to place themselves in a really good light, often at the expense of other people. Um, you know, Amy Thomas, one thing I've seen uh, that you've seen you write is this notion of you don't want to be judged for your syndrome. You're very open about your syndrome. You're just and you, you talk very freely about it. Uh, but you don't want to be judged that way. Right. You want to you want it to be understood as a disease that you've got a disease. Uh, I think you said if you had schizophrenia uh, and people wouldn't be saying, well, what a creep, you know, so they'd be saying, well, I mean, obviously, this is a disease. It's got an organic component. It's, nobody decides to be schizophrenic. It's not a whole bunch of volitional uh, decisions. Uh, um, uh, you'd, you'd like to be understood that way. So let me ask you this question. What part of you is different and separate from everything that makes you a sociopath? You know, it's such a good question. Uh, you know, I have religious beliefs. I'm Mormon, and I think they, and having grown up that way as a child, I think they inform the way that I sort of view myself, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's possible for me to try to as much as I have, separated my behaviors and my uh, kind of default choices, what would happen impulsively if I didn't go through the motions of, you know, uh, a further analysis before I just act on every impulse. Uh, 
you know, my religious beliefs suggest that I was a spirit before I came to this world. And so everybody manifests themselves differently. You know, I have these Down syndrome, I have a Down syndrome uncle and Down syndrome aunt. And frequently when I interact with them, I think, what would these people be like if they didn't have Down syndrome? You know, and I have a friend who's schizophrenic, and I think, what would he be like if he wasn't schizophrenic? And so it's a similar kind of guess with me. What would I be like if I weren't a sociopath? But, you know, when my Down syndrome uncle does something, you know, terribly, like, uh, you know, has an accident in the pool, you know, does anybody get upset and, you know, yell at him? No, we just kind of, he's held to a different standard. He's obviously different from everybody else. So you don't hold him to the same standard, even though that is a very antisocial thing that he did. And it did very much harm everybody else. But it's like, you know, he doesn't know better or that's just that's just the nature of his particular disorder. Although I'll stop you there and say some people would say, well, yeah, the difference is, uh, Amy Thomas, um, you do know better. You just don't care. Yeah, it is true. That's kind of the nature of being a sociopath is that you ask, and this is why they get sent to prison rather than the insanity defense. Insanity defense is you didn't know better, at least in that moment, right? You're, you're too crazy, irrational to be able to know the difference between right and wrong. Sociopaths are aware, but, you know, it's sort of as Ariel was saying, it's one thing to be kind of aware of it. You know, you may be aware that your wife is going to be angry, you know, if you have an affair, uh, but sometimes it's another thing to kind of control that behavior. You know, just because I'm aware of it doesn't mean that I have 100% control over my behavior. And I think that worries people, but who does have 100% control over their behavior? Um, Betsy Kaplan actually does, our producer. Uh, but she's the only person I know. Um, everybody else is a little bit out of control. But actually, that leads me. I, one last question before we break. I'm going to come back to you, um, Ariel Baskin Summers. All right, so. Some diseases are understood as sort of uh, ones or zeros, and some diseases are understood as continuums. So increasingly, when we talk about autism, we really talk about a continuum. Uh, there's, there's a syndrome, but it manifests itself with diff- different degrees of severity. Now, for practical purposes, you've got to have some kind of cutoff. You know, and it's whatever it is. You get a 25, you're in the study. You get a 24, you're not, just because you've got to do that. But how do you see psychopaths, psychopaths? Do you see that as a continuum, or do you see it as something that really can be established as kind of a bright line? Yeah, this is a really hot debate in the fields of psychopathy now. I will say that there does seem to be evidence that once individuals cross a certain point, for example, on the PCLR, if they're 30 or above, their behavior is categorically different than those who are below. So, for example, we tend to see people who are 30 or above on the PCLR show show deficits in startle potentiation, this sort of blink reflex that we have when we're scared. But those who maybe score a 27, a 24, don't show that same deficit. They actually tend to show hyperreactivity in terms of startle. So there does seem to be some evidence that there is a cut score. That doesn't negate the fact, though, that there's also a continuum. And this is um, this is kind of why the term psychopath, sociopath, psychopathic traits gets really complicated, because there are some individuals that could show aspects of psychopathy. There are people who could be manipulative, who are glib, who are uh, fearless and, and dominant over other people. But that's not necessarily the same as the whole sort of unitary construct of psychopathy. And so really, there has to be a combination of those types of interpersonal affective deficits and impulsive antisocial behavior. And as soon as there's that sort of combination, you tend to get higher on those scores and and likely go over that that 30 mark, for example, on the PCLR. All right. Uh, That just opened up a Pandora's box of questions, which I probably won't have time to get to. But we got to take a break right now. We'll come back for our final section after this. 
You know it's wrong to kick a dog or throw a toy at Sue. To pull the legs off of a frog is not the thing to do. Your mommy and your daddy know that you are learning as you go. But one thing they may not tell you is about your friend at Bellevue. Even a sociopath has feelings. It may not show its true. He's disconnected, disaffected, seems bad through and through. He may seem like your friend one day, the next some vile spew. But even he has feelings. Sociopath just like you If only there was some way to tell him If only he could hear But sociopaths so seldomly tune in loud and clear The more you try to help him, well, the more you'll live in fear But even Mr. Sociopath can shed a bogus tear Oh, a sociopath's life is an uphill climb So much to detach from and so little time If he wasn't removed so darn far He surely would be ever so sorry Though even though it seems difficult to detect Some patients might perhaps redeem his abominable defect Yes, doctor, thank you so much. I really appreciate you seeing me outside office hours. And yes, I will totally bring Chianti. That Dr. Lecter is so nice. Today's show was produced by Allison Ehrenreich, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our interns are Allison and Josh Nalea. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by the talented Mr. Ripley. For show pages, articles, and copies of the Faith Middleton Show staff's favorite recipes for liver and fava beans, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, this is the final segment of our conversation about sociopaths and psychopaths. Uh, and I have so many things that I want to ask both of our guests. So uh, let's get right down to it. Actually, I'm going to start with you, Ariel Baskin-Somers, then we'll come back to Emmy Thomas. I do want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in the area of modification. I mean, the, everything that we've said so far might argue in the direction of, well, that's the way these people are. You'll never be able to trust them. They are broken units. Uh, but you're actually uh, experimenting with and, 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 and discovering things about ways in which their behavior or reactions can be modified? Correct. I think there's a... a real utility to thinking about the deficits that psychopathic individuals have in terms of specific skill deficits. And in, like I mentioned before, that deficit in multitasking or attending to context. So myself and a number of colleagues have begun to address that type of skill deficit. So what we've been doing is actually taking psychopathic individuals and non-psychopathic individuals and having them play computer games. And this is a technique called cognitive remediation. It's been done in uh, other disorders and deficits such as schizophrenia and ADHD. And basically what it entails is having people play games that target the specific neural pathways we believe are dysfunctional. So in these games, we might have individuals train themselves to pay attention to two pieces of information at once in order to perform well on the task. And they tend to complete these games one hour a week over a series of weeks. And what we've found is that individuals who got a 
treatment or training that matched their deficit. So a psychopath that got a training that was targeted for that attention to context deficit actually showed improvement over time in terms of their emotional responses on other laboratory tasks and on their decision making. But if a psychopath got a training that didn't have anything to do with attending to context, they did not improve. And so it's really the first step in terms of research of showing that you can not only target the type of deficits we see in psychopaths, but you could actually modify it. We believe that the brain is plastic, that it's constantly updating and changing, and this is one way to do that. There are other studies that are beginning to come out from labs from, such as Mark Dad's work where he's showing empathy training in kids with Kyle's on emotional traits and showing some similar effects that if you train these kids to learn to do empathetic processing that they show improvement over time. I mean, this would blow the minds of a lot of ancient philosophers uh, and medieval philosophers and Renaissance philosophers because, okay, so there's sort of fake it until you make it. We're familiar with that idea. But neuroplasticity, as you say, suggests that if you begin to repeat certain cognitive functions again and again and again uh, because of, of reasons that have nothing to do with um, altruism or empathy or anything like that, uh, but because you'll get rewarded in a certain way if you pay attention to the crying child while you're in a big hurry to get to the buffet table, that if you you do that over and over again and things like that, you actually are, in fact, building a capacity, building a real capacity, not a fake capacity, right? Correct. There is an uh, there is an opportunity to train people to engage in a behavior that's more automatic, and in this particular case, that's more automatic and fits with sort of the social norms of how we tend to want to engage with the world around us. So, Emmy Thomas, as you listen to that, it sounds a little bit like your prosthetic moral compass, um, although not exactly the same thing. I mean, you know, even based on our conversation so far, and I, I hope I'm not hurting your feelings when I say this. I'd be a little nervous about going on a camping trip to Alaska with you. You know, I just feel as though if things headed south, you, know, you, you wouldn't necessarily save me and you might have some elaborate explanation why the cost benefit of, of just, uh, you know, trekking out of the wilderness without me uh, made a tremendous amount of sense. <laughs> but, uh, but on the other hand, I sense that you do want to improve, right? You, wanna, you do not want to be the basest uh, kind of sociopath that you can be. You want to be a better sociopath. Well, I think that's right. I think there are a lot of traits that really help me, you know, sociopathic traits. Uh, but I think there are a lot that also hurt me, you know, that prevent me from having long, meaningful relationships, that prevent me from having long, continued career success. You know, if everything happens an expiration date of like two to three years before I can't keep up the mask anymore, then that that's not really promising, a promising life. So I think that I have over this past decade and a half or so to really tried to self-examine and to at first I did come up with little fixes it sounds like this uh, and like the prosthetic moral compass like how can I how can I figure out a way to sort of mimic what other people have done recently I've actually been going to therapy and I uh, for whatever reason my therapist has really been helping you know sort of the advice that they give the general advice like uh, you shouldn't resent people. My therapist is like, no, every emotion that you think that you're kind of feeling, really stop and feel and try to identify it because that is an emotion and that is what you're feeling. And if you cover it up, then that's just mask wearing. Another one is, uh, you know, being self-absorbed. You know, how do I stop manipulating? I actually, until recently, didn't even know how to stop manipulating because there was nothing to replace it with. You know, it was the idea of, oh, I can take it down a mask or I can stop trying to get you to do something uh, but then what do I do instead? You know, there was nothing there uh, underlying, no sense of self with which to act, I felt. 
And so his uh, approach has been trying to get me to realize I do have a preference in a situation and to be entirely selfish, you know, act as if the rest of the world doesn't exist and make the decision. And you know then that that's not a manipulative decision because you're not worried about the effect it's going to have on anyone else besides you. You know, you said at the beginning of the, your statement there are benefits to being a sociopath. Uh, I want to. I wish I had like another hour to ask you some more questions about this. I've got like two minutes. I immediately sort of think, well, what does she mean by that? And obviously, you know, you can sort of um, get right to the the point of certain things. And I, I started thinking about you know what's often called the, the trolley experiment or the trolley um, uh, thought experiment, where and there are different versions of it. Basically, but basically, it comes down to questions like, would you deliberately uh, kill one person or you know deliberately cause it the death of one person? and knowing that by doing that you might be saving five other people if the trolley went down the other track. And obviously a lot of people find it very difficult to intentionally kill a person even if they know that there's a greater benefit somewhere down the line. Do you think you'd be better at something like that? Or would some of these concerns be difficult for you to process at all? Like why do I even care uh, which way this particular scenario plays out? You know, I think I, in my current situation, would. I don't know if, uh, you know, the more advanced over the 30 uh, benchmark so psychopaths would. But I do think, you know, you look at spies, you look at soldiers who are very successful, these generals who that's basically what they're doing is making that decision every day. Should we kill, you know, a few of these people in order to save this other larger number? And I do think that that would really come in handy. You at least would not feel any of the sort of psychological disturbance that somebody who is highly empathetic would probably feel. I mean, somebody, we just got a tweet or a message saying, I hope you'll mention the benefits of psychopathy in corporate America. So some people who are pretty critical of corporate America will say, well, there's CEOs all the time who decide, all right, you know, we could make sure that 10 fewer people died as a result of our product, but there would be a significant drop in, in earnings or profits or something like that. Do you feel like in some ways you're criticized for um, something that in, in other ways makes the world go round, as they say? Yeah, exactly. I do think that it's often the case. You know, we have a life is approximately $2 million. We learned that in the law. If somebody dies, then it's approximately valued at $2 million. Why? I think that shocks a lot of people, you know. And so if you were to make a law that said negligence, you know, should we, uh, you know, fix the trains in order to save one person every thousand years and that fixing the trains is going to be $10 million, then no, we shouldn't fix the trains because the value of a life is $2 million and it would cost $10 million. Uh, all right. Um, I wish I could ask another question, but if I do, I'll be really sorry because we've only got a minute left. Instead, I am going to profusely thank, first of all, you, Emmy Thomas, uh, author of the book Confessions of a Sociopath, A Life Hiding in Plain Sight. You can also visit Emmy Thomas's popular blog, sociopathworld.com, here in the studio. I also want to thank Ariel Baskin-Somers, an associate professor of psychology at Yale, uh, who's uh, working in all these really interesting ways about whether uh, psychopaths can be trained to process emotions kind of the way that we do. I won't use better. I'll be, I'll be neuro-accepting and say, you know, the way we do anyway. That was our show about psychopaths and sociopaths. Thanks to Allison Ehrenreich for putting together such a great panel of guests. Thank you for listening. I have no human empathy. I'm aloof, uh, but charming, and I'm selfish and cunning. So you're a sociopath? No, I'm a cat.